morning, gentlemen. Happy Advent to you. Uh, you don't have too many shopping days left. You better get that woman a nice gift that she's been dreaming of. All right. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 22. And we pick up the story after David had been in the cave of Adullam and then had departed there and gone into the, the land of Judah, into the forest of Hereth. And as we uh, traveled along with David, we saw that there are a variety of theologies we need to develop and learn for our own lives. Uh, when we find ourselves oppressed and marginalized and lonely, uh, and David has taught us much. Well, let's continue the story in chapter 22, verse 6. And I want to read through verse 19, and we'll see that David's problems actually increase, but his experience of God at the same time deepens, which is what we would expect with the disciples of Christ. As their troubles deepen, so does their knowledge of the living God. Let's look at verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him, Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob. And all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen up against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Hamelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. You know, uh, we need to remember during the Advent season, during the Christmas season, that every account of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us that not only did Christ, our great advocate, come for us, but that when Christ came, he faced major opposition. For example, if you look at Luke's gospel, the famous Luke 2 text, the Christmas story, we're told that it was in the year of Caesar Augustus when he decreed that all the world should be enrolled for taxation purposes. Here is a, the second of the Caesars uh, who was a very brutal man 
Of course, Julius Caesar was the one that turned the Roman Republic into a monarchy. And Octavian, Caesar Augustus, was the second Caesar after Julius Caesar. And uh, Caesar Augustus, his name was the August One, the Divine One, called himself the Son of God. And so anybody who was listening to the Luke's account of the gospel in the first century would have seen what Luke was saying. That during the time of Caesar Augustus, when he was claiming to be the divine one, when he was claiming to be the son of God, in the midst of his oppression, when he had slain 300 senators because they were inconveniently in his way, the Lord sent his own son, Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came in the midst of a wicked world when kings had taken advantage of their subjects. And God was sending him one who was going to lay down his life for his subjects. Very different from the way the world operates. Or you can look at Matthew's gospel. And in Matthew chapter 2, we see what was happening after Jesus was born. Then Herod the Great was over all of Israel and that surrounding area. And he heard from the wise men that a, a Messiah, a king, had been born. Oh, I want to know who the king is, so that I too may worship him. And he sends the wise men off to come back and tell him exactly where that child is. But, of course, Herod hears, oh, it's in Bethlehem. And when the wise men didn't return and tell him exactly where the Messiah was, Herod, in all of his wickedness, sought to put to death all of the children who were under two years of age so that he was sure to wipe out the one who is predicted to be his replacement, the future king. And so from the very beginning of Jesus' infant life, he was taken off to flee, to run from the evil that was after him, and his parents took him off to Egypt. So no matter where you look in the Gospels, there is tremendous opposition to the Lord Jesus. When he begins his ministry publicly in Mark's Gospel, as soon as he begins preaching, demons are coming out of the woodwork to oppose him, speak against him. And this is the reason we see all the demonic activity because they now behold the Messiah is here proclaiming another kingdom that replaces their kingdom. And so they oppose Him with all the force of the underworld. And what you have to realize is that as the brothers of Jesus Christ, if you've given your life to Him, you're marked by great opposition of human beings. Satan is literally the adversary, the one who opposes you. And he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And as Paul says, he often disguises himself as an angel of light. And he's expert at counterfeiting uh, his, his roles so that he can fool those who want to be fooled. And it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we're able to identify these counterfeits and the ploys of the evil one. But you have to understand that you're not a paranoid when you believe that you have a whole array of enemies who are out to get you. They are out there, and you learn this in the Christian life. And so David has learned it too, that when he's anointed to be the king, the future king of Israel, he is provoking all of the opposition of the wicked world around him. So are you in so many ways. Now, of course, we happen to live in a society, happily enough, where our lives are not normally threatened, we're normally not thrown into prison because we believe in Jesus Christ or because we promote a certain ethic. But sometimes you can see the signs on the horizon of how if our, if our morality continues to decline, that may very well be the case. But for many in the world through the past 2,000 years, that is the case, that when they've professed Jesus Christ or when they've promoted a certain ethic, they found themselves... Uh, their lives threatened and their welfare threatened. So it is with David. So uh, what we should notice in these, these verses 6 through 19 that we just read is that God's enemies seek to destroy us. God's enemies seek to destroy us. John says in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 18, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. And Saul is a type of antichrist. He is coming to destroy the good work of God and destroy God's people. And 
John says there are many antichrists. Now, of course, in our uh, eschatological schemes, we all know that there is uh, seemingly to be some great antichrist that comes right before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know exactly who that is. But John says, don't be so obsessed with the great antichrist, whoever that figure is. There are many antichrists. They're all around us. And they've always been there since uh, the promise of God in the Garden of Eden. As soon as God promised that there would come a child of the woman, even though Eve had sinned. From that very beginning, what happens? Cain slays Abel. So from the very beginning, we've had violence all the way through. Now, notice something about these enemies in verse 6 through 8. They distrust everybody. They distrust everybody. Look at Saul. He here is speaking to the people of Benjamin, you notice in verse 7. Saul is a Benjaminite. And so in his paranoia, the only people he's going to trust in his forces are the people who come from his tribe. So he's got all Benjaminites around him. No Judahites, no Issacharites, no Danites, nobody from any other tribe. Just the Benjaminites. And look how he tries to manipulate them and intimidate them. First of all, in verse 6, he's got his spear in his hand. So he's just always standing there with the symbol of his power right in his right hand while his troops are gathered around him, just holding his spear. And some of you know people who play business this way. They're always holding their cards close to their vest. They're always showing you the accoutrements of their power. They're always surrounded by power. They always want to, as one man said who was kind of a short guy, he says, Whenever I'm talking to somebody in a business deal, I make them sit down. And he's always standing up. He doesn't want anybody looking down on him. He's always got the signs of power around him. And here Saul has learned how to use power to intimidate people. And you see with these kinds of leaders who are being used of the evil one, they love to use intimidation. That's the way they motivate people. Some pastors try to do that, try to motivate people with intimidation and guilt complexes and fear complexes. It's always negative, and it always comes out of the psychology of the, the leader, not out of the need of the people. And notice he also tries to manipulate them. How does he do that? He says, hey, of verse 7, when's the last time David ever did you a favor? Do you think David uh, will make you the commander of his thousands and commander of his hundreds? Do you think David will give you all fields and vineyards? No, I'm the one who's going to give it to you. So Saul is hoarding his power, and he's saying, if you want any part of this, you better be loyal to me. So he's using financial manipulation uh, to build his leadership. So when people don't have character and don't have vision, so they can't motivate people by imitating their character, and they can't motivate people by seeking to aspire to a common vision that is worthy of humanity, then what do they do? They use intimidation, and they use manipulation financial manipulation in this case. And then notice not only that, but Saul is completely self-absorbed. He's obviously totally narcissistic. He says in in verse uh, 8, none of you is sorry for me. (laughs) Yeah, hey, Saul. Yeah, we really feel sorry for you, buddy. You're the king of Israel. I've been really weeping many tears over your lack of privilege lately. And he's looking to these poor guys who have left their homes and their wives and their children to fight his battle. And look at this unbelievable self-absorption. None of you guys is feeling sorry for me. It's unreal. None of you is sorry for me. And here's why. You don't disclose to me what my son has done in stirring up this trouble, in aligning himself with David. Well, the reason they don't is because, frankly, they have infinitely more character than does the king. And we'll see that, of course, later in this text, as we've already read. They have character. They're not going to do David in. They know David is a person of character, a person who's seeking to serve other people, and a person with a vision, and a person who happens, obviously, to have the favor of God upon him. They're not about to to betray David. Nobody feels sorry for me, he says. So he is paranoid and he distrusts everybody. And people in business, you know like this. And there's a certain way in which they can use their might and main and attain a certain level of success. And if you're not very careful, you're going to think that their way is the best way. 
or you're going to think that their way is the only way. Or you're going to think that, hey, you know what they got out of this is worth being a little bit less of a character than I ought to be. That's the temptation. What this text is doing for us is showing, is disabusing us of thinking for a moment that that's the way to go. Let's, let's look at the life of David in a few moments. We'll see how the Lord favors what he's doing. But now look at verses 9 through 16. You see, not only do they distrust everybody, but they refuse reason. Now, Doeg the Edomite, this is some character here. Uh, Calvin says about him in his commentary, Doeg is the consummate villain. So Doeg is there. None of the, none of the Israelites, native Israelites, will betray David, even though they're in the employ of Saul. They just, even as warriors, they, they just have too much character to betray David. But Doeg, the Edomite, the foreigner, he says, oh yeah, well, now that you mention it, uh, you know, I was up in Nob the other day and David came through and old Ahitab, I don't know what he was thinking. And he just throws Ahitab under the bus. And he says, Ahitab gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, which of course, as we've seen, was in the National uh, Historical Museum there in Nob, if you will. And uh, it was an icon for Israel's defeat of the Philistines. And oh, Ahimelech gave him that sword. So of course Saul is completely incensed. And he sent to Ahimelech, the priest, and had him come. And look how he addresses him in verse 12. He calls him son of Ahitub. That's like calling a guy by his last name. Hey, Wilson, come over here. And there's a certain disrespect to it. And you know that uh, Ahimelech is the second uh, most prominent person in Israel. Saul would be the most prominent. And then Ahimelech is the chief priest. And he would be number two. So what does Saul give him? Just, uh, you know, a, a disrespect. And, but notice what Ahimelech says. He said, here I am, my Lord. So he submits to the civil authorities. And Saul says to him, jumps to conclusions. Why have you conspired against me? Just jumps to conclusions. You ever know anybody who did that? Just accuses him before the evidence is in, before even the testimony of other people is given. You and David, son of Jesse, he calls him. You know, hey, Wilson, you and Jesse, uh, messing around. So just using disrespectful ways to, to address people. And then he, he accuses him, and then Ahimelech gives a perfectly reasonable answer. He says to the king, he says, King, look, um, I respect David just like everybody else because you respect him. He's your son-in-law. He's been the chief of your bodyguard. Uh, he has uh, been honored in your house. And my observation is that no one has been more faithful to you than this man David. So, of course, the implication is, if someone is that supportive of your administration, and your administration has been that supportive of him, it's only right that I, out of submission to you, would treat this man the way that I treated him. That's a very difficult argument to gainsay. And uh, he says... Today is the first time, he says, today is not the first time I've inquired of God for him. I've, I've done this on many occasions. David sought the Lord and come and asked for my advice. Don't let the king impute anything. Don't, don't blame me for anything. For I've known nothing of this, much or little. And the king said, very logically, you shall surely die. Does that make any sense? Here is a murderous heart. You shall surely die. Ahimelech. Now, who knows, uh, in Saul's craziness, in his abject wickedness, he may be reacting to Samuel having rejected him months before. Remember, Samuel rejected him because Saul rejected the word of the Lord. And so Samuel told him that he was rejected as king. So here's the priesthood that had rebuked Saul before. 
And rather than Saul submitting himself to the rebuke of the church, Saul decides to attack the church. And you see many people who do that. Once you, once you decide that you're not going to obey the Word of God, then it's amazing what else that would lead to. And you know, we, we've had uh, in our church here just recently, we've had several people who just decide, they just up and decide they're going to divorce their wives with no biblical grounds whatsoever. And they look at our pastors, and they just say, yeah, I know what the Bible says, but. Now, that's an unbelievable moment in a man's life. You look at the Bible, not on some picayune issue in your life, but on a major issue in your life, and you look at the Bible, and you say, I don't give a damn. Now, when a man does that, then, of course, we pastors get very concerned, not just about the moment in which he doesn't care that he's just flat turning his back on the Word of God. But where is this going to lead? And you can watch a life like that, and it usually doesn't lead to somewhere very helpful at all. Now, of course, God is gracious, and there have been many times in my life, many times in my life, I'm ashamed to admit it, but it's true, when I've done something and I knew it was contrary to the Word of God, I did it as a believer. So if God struck everybody, who intentionally turned away from his word, I'd be gone a long time ago. And I suspect so would you. But there is such a thing as repentance. And God is gracious and takes us back. But under our own powers, if we don't have the gift of repentance, that kind of high-handed sin leads to insanity. And that's what Saul is, is right now. He is insane, insanely wicked. It started with what seemed like a little sin that he was supposed to wipe out all of Amalek in place of God's judgment upon that people. And God wanted Saul to be his agent of judgment against a wicked people. And Saul decided to hold back the king and a few of the nice animals so that he could offer them as sacrifice to the Lord. Get that. Now, okay, if we want to call that a small sin, oh, all right. But look at this. Saul is trying to destroy the entire leadership of the church, all of the clergy. Just take them out with one fell swoop. It's insanely wicked. What he was not willing to do with the Amalekites, which was to exercise holy war on God's behalf, now he exercises holy war against the priests and against the entire city with all their wives and children and animals in it. It's insanely wicked. And that's what happens. When you turn your back on the Lord, when you hear the gospel and you say, not now, when you decide you're going to do something later, you know what you're really just saying? It's just a more sophisticated no. That's what it is. And that no naturally leads to wildly evil things. And you can see it in lives that we all know where people have turned their back on the Lord, where the gospel has been clearly offered to someone and they've turned their back on it and it just doesn't lead to anywhere good. So here, they're committing massive violence. They wipe out 85 people who wore the linen ephod. That means they're priests. And then they wipe out the city of Nob. God's enemies are very wicked. But I want you to notice something. Let's look at verse 20 and read forward. And here's what we're going to see in this entire next section from verse 20 of chapter 22 all the way through the end of chapter 23 that God protects us from our enemies. Our enemies are paranoid and distrustful. They are unreasonable and make false charges against us. They commit wicked violence, and they're stronger than we are. But God is going to protect us against those. Let's look, and look at the text and see what happens here. Verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew, on that, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, 
I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Let's stop there for a moment. I want you to to notice that he guides us by his word. Now, look here that God's enemies can only carry out God's will, frankly. As wicked as they can be, God is more powerful and uses even the wickedness of our enemies to accomplish his purposes. Now, Ahimelech is the great-grandson of Eli the great-grandson of Eli, through Phinehas and Ahitub, then Ahimelech. So he's the fourth in line after Eli. Now, will you remember that because of Eli allowing his sons to have sexual relations with the women who would come to worship, and because they high-handedly took the sacrifices that were not to belong to them and misbehaved in every way, that God gave a decree that His house would come under judgment. In fact, you, you'll see that in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 30 through 33. God had already said He was going to move aside the house of Eli. And that's exactly what's happened. In the midst of all this evil, with Doeg the Edomite, the consummate villain, overwhelming us with his insane wickedness, and Saul the same, We sometimes forget, you know what? God's at work. And that's exactly what God was doing. He was using the wicked Edomite to carry out his purpose. Now, we don't like this. We don't don't like this at all. Uh, As a matter of fact, when God was using the Babylonians to discipline us for our idolatry and immorality and took us into exile, when he was bringing those Chaldeans, you, uh, with those uh, Chaldeans, do you remember what Habakkuk the prophet said? Lord, are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? Do you know who these people are? These wicked, bloodthirsty Chaldeans you're going to bring to conquer your people in Israel? Explain this. And God explains it and shows Habakkuk that, yes, he uses all of history to carry out his will, even to discipline his own sons. So sometimes when we face what appears to be nothing but just pure, unadulterated, godless wickedness, just remember, God hasn't left His hands off the the, the levers of history. He's still controlling everything, including wickedness. And if you want a classic example, look at Job 1 and 2, when Satan is carrying out all kinds of evil against God's man, Job. But you can see from that text, he does nothing without permission from the living God. In fact, God even suggested it in order to prove the righteousness of his servant, that he would never turn his back on God, no matter what Satan did. So Satan was given freedom to perpetrate all kinds of wickedness against Job. Don't forget that God's in charge even of wicked history, and he's accomplishing his purpose here. But you can't help also to notice that that God preserves a remnant, Abiathar. Now, later on, after David dies, Solomon will move Abiathar to the side as well. He won't kill him, but he will remove him from office. So now the whole house of Eli, by the time Solomon takes over, the whole house of Eli is gone, as God said. But during David's life, Abiathar serves as high priest. And notice that God preserves a remnant, even in the midst of massive wickedness. One man, the 86th man, is preserved by God. You see this over and over again. How about in Egypt, when wicked Pharaoh was just destroying the sons of Israel, except for Moses, (laughs) who was put in a little reed basket, and God preserved a remnant, and he used Moses. What about Jesus with all the hundreds of children who were killed in Bethlehem, who were two years of age or younger, but God preserved him as well. And over and over again, you can see it through history, God is always preserving a remnant of his people. He made a promise to us, he's going to keep that promise. We may experience waves of wickedness and destruction and death and violence, 
But God will always keep His church. There's no way you can remove the church from the face of the earth. So God protects us from our enemies, and He particularly guides us by His Word. Now, why do I say that? Well, let's look at this. Let's pick up the story again with uh, Abiathar, who is now taken into safekeeping by David. And you can see the parallel, can't you? That Saul slays all of the priests. David protects them. Saul is the destroyer. David's the Savior. And that's the way our Savior is as well. Let's pick it up with chapter 23, verse 1. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack those Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah. Look at this. Now, this is the key. He had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now, it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand for you. Shut him in, himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then said David, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hands of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, rose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Now notice that the, that the Lord guides us by His Word, first of all, through His priestly remnant. And we've seen how God preserves a remnant. In this case, it's Abiathar. And Abiathar remains David's priests until David dies. And we've seen over and over again in the Scriptures how God does this. As a matter of fact, I cite here the Westminster Confession of Faith, Look at uh, paragraph 5. This is in chapter 25 of Westminster Confession. And that last sentence, Nevertheless, there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to His will. So the Confession of Faith says there rightly that the Bible teaches us the church may wax and wane. The church at times will have strong faith, will have weak faith. Sometimes the church will be corrupt and need to be disciplined. But because of God's promise, there will always be the church on the face of the earth. We can grieve over the destruction of a church in a given nation. And you, you can look in various nations and see how from time to time the church has been just nearly wiped out. If you, if you look at Armenia, for example, in the first part of the 20th century, how the church was almost just completely destroyed in Armenia, and we, we grieve over such historical events. But make no mistake about it, it may be destroyed in one nation, but the church will never be destroyed from the face of the earth. And it will continue to grow and prosper until the Lord comes. Now, notice that God preserves His Word for us, gives us His Word through the priestly remnant. And that priestly remnant is the mechanism by which David knows the will of the Lord. David can go straight to the Lord himself. But the priest was given the ephod, and inside that linen ephod, which was on their breastplate, there were the, uh, the thumen and the uh, uh, ermine. And it's like dice. You roll them, 
and it shows yes or no. And God used that, the casting of lots, to show His will through the appointed priesthood that He had given. So when Abiathar comes with the ephod, Saul had rejected the Word of God. He had shown that he has no interest in it. And when you have no interest in it, eventually as an act of judicial hardening, you'll actually lose the Bible in your life. That's what happened to Saul. He lost the linen ephod. The priesthood went over to David. And David now has the Word of God because David wants the Word of God. And God will guide him. You'll notice in verses 1 through 5 that we... uh, are guided by the Word of God into God's mission. So He guides us through the priestly remnant, through His Word, and He guides us into His mission. Now this is crucial because the reason that Keilah, which was a a city of Judah, it was Israelites who were being attacked and all their wheat was being taken by the Philistines. The Philistines would, you know, the Keilites would go out and work in the fields, they would thresh their grain, and then here come the Philistines and just bulldoze them and take their grain away. So they do all the work and they have nothing to eat. That's what was happening there. Why was that happening? Because Saul was wickedly trying to destroy someone who should have been his friend. And he was taking the forces that he had and misusing them for his own personal insane paranoia. And so the citizens of Keilah were subject to attack from the Philistines. Now, let me tell you how this would be handled in our own day if Saul is the Democrat and David's the Republican. David's going to say, hey, put out the word to everybody in Judah and all over Israel. See what happens when this guy's in office? These poor Keolites over there, they're just starving to death. And David would have gone to Jerusalem and snuck around told everybody what a lousy King Saul is, and he would have told his aides, now look, don't go in there and solve anything with the Keolites, because if you do that, I won't have a political story against Saul. So let's just let things be bad over there, and let's just use it as a, a, a way to make political points in our campaign to take over the kingship. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Well, look what David does. David is under attack by the most powerful man he knows. And David never loses a sense of his mission and what he's here for. And gentlemen, so often when we come under attack, we put our tail between our legs and we feel so sorry for ourselves and we feel like we've been completely denuded, completely disemboweled, completely paralyzed from doing anything good. To heck with that thought. God uses us when we're under attack. Sometimes that's the very way in which He wants to use us is when you're under attack and when you think that your life's been emptied of its its meaning or power. This is the moment to be on mission. There's never a moment not to be on mission. So even when David, you would think, would be totally on defense, just trying to escape, he's on offense. He's on defense in order to be in offense. So you're always in the game. You're always scoring points even though you've got to have a good defense as well. Why? Because God is God, and God is able to defend us, and God is able to use us. And even when you're under attack, and sometimes especially when you're under attack. So David does what? He goes, the wording is is unbelievable. You get to the end of verse 5. David saved the inhabitants of Keilah while he was being chased for his life by the king. That's an amazing statement. And it shows you the character of David, who was a man after God's own heart, carrying out God's mission, even at risk to his life. And his men couldn't believe he was doing this. David, we're trembling with fear just sitting here in Judah. You're going to go fight a battle and draw attention to yourself? And Saul will know exactly where you are? And we're not stupid. We know that city has walls and gates. It wasn't sufficient to keep the Philistines out, but it'll be sufficient to keep us in when we're besieged by Saul. Are you sure about this, David? So David said, well, let me check with the Lord again on this one. Okay, you're making a good point. Let me go back to the Lord and be sure I heard him right, which is what David does, and he heard him right. He says, gentlemen, we're going. And to their credit, they followed their leader. And then, of course, they escaped. But then look, not only is he staying on mission, but he's guided away from destruction. Abiathar had fled to David. He had the ephod in his hand. 
And he told David to escape. And the Word of God will guide you. It may not look like the most obvious way that you're going to escape, but you just stay with the Word of God, gentlemen. When you're in a tight place, you don't know what to do, go to the Word of God. That's the reason we're here at Amen Bible Study. We're out there beating snakes, trying to make a living, trying to provide for our families, trying to live godly lives. We need to come in and study the Word of God. There have to be moments in our days, moments in our weeks, when we just sit still for a moment and just hear the Word of God, and He will guide you through. And that's exactly what he did for David. David's life looked impossibly at risk, impossibly uh, uh, terminal. But David simply trusted the Word of God and his guidance. And he stayed on mission, and he trusted God to deliver him. And David's life, when it's over, it's over. When God's through with David, God's through with David. But until then, David can trust God with his life. Your day's already appointed. Why are you going to worry about it? It's already appointed. Why worry about it? Let's just live life now in the midst of danger. Live according to the Word of God. Now notice, uh, not only uh, are we told that He guides us by His Word when He protects us, but B, He comforts us by His children. Let's look at verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. What a powerful passage. Gentlemen, when you invest your life in the kingdom of God, He will give you the comfort that you need. And it may not come from your blood family, which it didn't in David's case because he had them in Moab under protection. It may not come from the the, the family of Jonathan. In Jonathan's case, he had to turn his back on his own father to find real fellowship in his real family, the covenantal family of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we come to Christ, we also come to a new family and we begin to cultivate real family relationships. And that's what David and Jonathan are doing here. And Jonathan says, look, David, it's clear the Lord has anointed you. My dad is not going to be the king. You will be the king, and I want to be at your right hand. And he reconfirmed that covenant that he had with David. Oh, what power there is in that. And look how Jonathan strengthened him and encouraged him. He strengthened him in God. He as much as took David and just said, David, I'm putting you in the hands of God, and his hands are powerful. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ said, No one shall snatch them out of my hand. And the Father is greater than I, and no one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. He was encouraging His own disciples, even in the upper room, to know that the Lord would protect them and keep them. And that's what Jonathan is doing. Now, of course, what's so sad here in our hearts, David didn't know it, but this is the last time he had ever seen Jonathan. And Jonathan just goes to his home. And Jonathan does what Jonathan's supposed to do. And Jonathan has a vision of being David's prime minister. He never gets that opportunity. But that was what he wanted to do. Instead of inheriting the kingdom for himself, Jonathan wanted to be the key man who made David's kingdom successful. And of course, when we come to the funeral of Jonathan, we'll see why David just mourns over him with tears uh, because he was the best friend he ever had other than God Himself. But God will provide that for us. When you're in His mission, you're being guided by His Word, you can trust Him to give you the encouragement from other brothers that you need. And it's very powerful and very necessary encouragement. Well, thirdly, let's notice that He preserves us by His providence. Look at verse 19. Then the Ziphites... Now let's stop for just a moment. The the Ziphites were Judahites. They were not in the tribe with Saul. He was a Benjaminite. David was the Judahite. So these Ziphites, you would expect, if anybody were to side with David, his fellow tribesmen would side with him. Well, with that, let's read. Verse 19, The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish? Thanks a lot, Ziphites. On the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon, 
Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord. Oh, wow. That makes me want to throw up. Here you have a wicked man who's using spiritual language. It's a total hypocritical cover-up. It's just sappy, syrupy crap. He says, may the, you be blessed by the Lord. You don't even know the Lord. What, you know, how can you bless me when you don't even know Him? For you have had compassion on me. Look at that, that narcissism again. You've had compassion on me. Not you've done Israel an honor. Not you've tried to promote the kingdom of God. You've had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is. And who has seen him there? For it has told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with some sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. And now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, stop right there. Here's what's going on. David is down south, just west of the Dead Sea, if you will. He's fleeing for his life. Saul now has him in his sights. There's a big mountain. David's over here on this side. Saul's over here on this side, and Saul knows he's over there. On the other side of that mountain where David is, Nothing but low flatlands. He is cooked. As soon as Saul comes around this mountain and assures himself that David is in front of him, David has nowhere to hide. No more strongholds, no more caves, no more mountains. He's cooked. So Saul sends his men, he divides them and sends them around the mountain this way. And they're just ready now to get David in their sights. And it's all over. And look at verse 27. A messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Gentlemen, our friends will betray us. They just will. Verses 19 through 24a. You'll have moments when you thought someone for sure was the one guy you could count on and you won't be able to count on him anymore. I've seen that happen to men over and over again through life. I'm not saying your best friend will betray you. I'm just saying that somebody close to you, if you live long enough, will turn you in and you'll feel the loss of his support and in your mind you won't be able to come up with a very good reason for it. It'll just seem irrational and evil to you. Our friends may betray us. And in Psalm 54... David says, verse 4, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. So David simply looks to the Lord. Here it's over. He's being pursued. He can't see any way of escape. He's finally trapped. But he looks to the Lord. He writes this when he was betrayed by the Ziphites. Psalm 54, as I said to you before, as just as Paul wrote his letters in prison, David wrote many of his psalms in caves and on the run because his heart was broken. He was terrified. He was looking to the Lord. All of his artistic instincts were coming out. And David looks to the Lord, and what happens? Verse 24b through 29, God overrules. Just flat overrules. And some can say, well, isn't it interesting, this, this coincidence? Hmm. How about that? You know, the Philistines just happened to evade at the right time. Gentlemen, if you've looked carefully at your Bible, you'll find this happening over and over and over again. God is in charge of history, and God is controlling history for the advancement of His kingdom and for the deliverance of His people. 
And you may have someone attacking you. You may have the, Satan himself after you and his minions after you. And you can't defend yourself against him. You're cooked. But God, the one who lives in us, is greater than he who lives in the world. And God will protect his people. And that's what he does here. And at the end, you see this comparison between Saul and David. Saul's the destroyer of Israel. David's the savior of Israel. Saul is uninformed by the word of God. David is guided by God's word. Saul has a great companion, Doeg the Edomite, the ultimate villain. Who is David's companion? Saul's godly son, Jonathan, is his best friend. Saul is frustrated and can't carry out his mission. And David is safe in the hands of God. Gentlemen, I just ask you, which place do you want to be in? Do you want to be in the one who is self-absorbed, seeking to carry out his own will by his own methods, taking advantage of other people, trying to intimidate and manipulate? And look what happens to a life like that. Or do you want to, do you want to be the one who's looking to the Lord for His Word and who submits yourself to His providence, who trusts Him, and who continues in prayer and asks for His protection, knowing that you can't protect yourself? And look at the life that it leads to. And of course, ultimately, it leads to the Lord Jesus Christ who comes. And one of the main things Jesus did when He was here was He prayed. He prayed, He prayed, He prayed. He trusted His Father. And He laid down His life for His sheep. And now, gentlemen, He is exalted. This greater Son of David is exalted at the right hand of God. And there, He's preparing a place for all the other little Davids, all the other little Christs, who will walk in His footsteps and trust Him that at the end of the day, He will vindicate His Davids. He will vindicate His people. And He will you. You wait for Him. You pray to Him. You trust Him. No matter what evil comes your way, and you'll see light at the end of the day. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your great salvation. We see it here in this text and on every page of the Bible. And we see it especially in the person and work of Your own Son, Jesus Christ who came as a little babe in Bethlehem and who was so vulnerable and subject to evil violence. And yet you preserved him and you grew him up and he taught us and he loved us. And then, Lord, you appointed that he would die for us so that we would be spared the wickedness perpetrated against us by all of our enemies. We are amazed again at your great salvation. And we, again this morning, would pledge ourselves to you that we may walk from this place trusting in the very Word of God, trusting in Your sweet providence, looking to the comfort that comes from brothers in the faith, and asking only that we may be Your men, men after Your own heart. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.